liberalism moves to science as a means of answering the unanswerable. And so we really affix our habits of thought to the scientific disciplines, trusting that they're, you know, that they're working in pure forms and that they're unadulterated by any kind of outside interests. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks again so much for joining us here in the caves of Altamira. We are back after a bit of a break for the summertime. It was quite nice over August to take a bit of break from everything, podcast, my own work, writing, and so forth, um, just to kind of hang out with my son and wife and kick it around here in lovely uh, northern Japan. But it is also exciting to be back in the mix here, putting together a new slate of episodes I'm dubbing this season two, hopefully in, in a somewhat of a symbolic sense that I feel after dipping my toes into the podcast waters last year and learning quite a few things and improving my technological and production kind of capacity in terms of learning how to edit and process all this stuff, I'm still by no means anywhere near a master, but given that I started at pretty much zero, uh, given that baseline I've made you know, and the show's made some pretty significant strides since our earliest days. And I feel it's time to try to hopefully consolidate um, some of the things I've learned and improvements I've been able to make uh, and really up our game, as they like to say. Um, and so we will be launching that today with the first episode of season two. Uh, but in a twist, um, this will be our first show having a returning guest. Um, that would be the one and only James Bacho, PhD. Uh, he appeared on our second episode, and just I received a lot of interesting comments and feedback um, based upon his appearance. And I thought uh, it would be really great to try to have him back sometime. And as it turns out, he's just completed a manuscript um, that he's going to be now working to get signed on with a publisher uh, that really, I think, looks at a critical moment in, in our history and, and in some ways is a interesting in terms of the time frame it focuses on and the analytical frames it takes, but uh, additionally just in terms of its method and, and the way he goes about producing and, and writing the book. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the episode. And upon learning that Jim had completed um, this manuscript, I thought, well, I really wanted to have you back on the show and this provides an excellent occasion to do that. And so um, we're going to start off talking about the book, and but I think the book and the themes explored in the book serves as an excellent subtext for a wide-ranging conversation, as as with our previous discussion, you know, that spans everything from very here and now issues to more deep, or I don't know if deep's the right word, uh, you know, more abstract, perhaps um, philosophical underpinnings to these contemporary phenomenon that are shaping the here and now. And, and that's why I really am happy to have Jim back on and um, why I think he is, you know, one of the perfect people to have on this show, because I think that's the show's mission as much as anything else is to walk this fine line between being relevant to what's happening now and relevant to contemporary discourses, political debates and, and so forth and social dialogues 
but also to keep an eye on their philosophical, historical, and kind of undercurrent roots um, that are always there shaping and in some ways defining the nature and the terms of these debates. And I think Jim's writing and thinking is right at that important nexus. And I think that comes out in our discussion today. So without further ado, uh, I would like to just give you a brief introduction to um, Jim Boncho, tell you a little bit about him. For those of you who listened before, he's no stranger, but you know, assuming we have some new listeners, um, I'd just like to tell you that James is a teacher, writer, and artist living in Seoul, South Korea. Um, he writes philosophical works on aesthetics and epistemology and teaches courses in storytelling and filmmaking. Uh, he has written for Media, Culture, and Society, The Journal, um, Film Philosophy, also an academic journal, and studies in European cinema, cosmos, and history, as well as the Journal of Deleuze and Guattari, I hope I'm saying that correctly, studies, uh, semiotica, and monthly review of philosophy and culture, amongst others. So, I mean, it's really widely published in, in these journals, and, and I think that's a testament to his body of knowledge and, and just thought in, in these areas. Uh, he's also published um, works including essays on Hellenistic concepts of knowledge, religion, and poetics, and he is currently completing two books, one on a philosophy of audibility and another on the politics of electronic discourse. Um, there's more you can learn about Jim at jimbacho.com. Uh, I will put a link to that in the show notes. And um, as you can see, I mean, he's just someone who I, again, I get, I don't even like reading this because it makes me feel insignificant and that I don't work hard enough and I, and I don't, I don't produce um, enough writing. So, you know, Jim's just extremely accomplished. Um, he has another book he wrote um, that recently came out. Uh, on Terrence Malick. Uh, I'll also put a link to um, that, the Amazon link to that um, in the show notes. So, I mean, he's just a machine, an intellectual machine, um, but also a, a, a romantic pining for brighter and better days. So I think uh, Jim is just such an interesting and, and awesome person to have on the show, and I'm really glad uh, that he's joining us today. And on that note, I'm really glad for anyone listening to this or has been listening to this, or maybe this is the first time you've um, checked out the show Regardless, thank you so much for listening, um, sharing with your friends. As always, I would really ask you to leave a review or rate or write a comment, um, especially on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever podcast platform you're using. Um, that really helps to increase our visibility. We're a very small operation, basically me, some software and a microphone and some cool people that I'm able to bother to have come on the show. On that note, I'm in the process of lining up in, you know some really awesome guests for this uh, season. So I I'm, I'm really hope you'll stay with us, spread the word, um, share with your friends. And if you have been a loyal and dedicated listener, going back to the days when uh, my microphones and technology and other things were, uh, suffice to say, a little bit more uh, hard scrabble. Um, we were a real upstart operation. Um, I really do appreciate you sticking with us and making this show um, a success. Um, we just, we get a lot of listeners and it's really cool for me to experience and, and have the opportunity to try to produce something that uh, hopefully, again, walks that fine line between being a show about contemporary affairs, but also being a show about the deeper undercurrents lurking below the surface. All right. Thank you so much. And without further ado, let's get to the show.
Okay, James Bacho, thanks so much for joining us here in the Caves of Altamira. Kevin, it's great to be here again. Thanks for having me back. Right. Well, um, it is great to have you for this inaugural episode of what I'm dubbing season two. I guess um, all of these things are kind of arbitrary, so I'm deciding to call this season two. This is episode one, and you are our first um, returning guest. Yeah, it's a it's a privilege. Um, I've enjoyed the um, the the pod you've been doing and seeing it evolve and seeing the the guests that you've had. Uh, it's been really impressive. I I like it. All right. Well, well, thanks so much. That's quite kind of you. Um, So keeping the circle of kindness and uh, celebration of others' um, work and and achievements, you are in the process of soon publishing a new book. The thing with this book is... I don't know if you want me to get into it, but... Um, no, let's... Yeah, like, well, yeah, go ahead. Get into it. Let's do that. Sure. Um, well, it's it basically came out of... Um, around the leading up to the election of Trump, um, a little bit before that, I, I had started a document on my computer called... I was calling it Philosophical Crumbs, which is a nod to Kierkegaard, um, which is I would just kind of... While I'm working on my other scholarship stuff, my other writing, my other research. Um, I would also be witnessing what's happening uh, through social media and through, um, you know, corporate and nonprofit news media. And just something would hit me and I'd have to write it down. And so I would go to this document um, and write what was ever on my mind, but from, but informed through what I was reading at the time philosophically. So I usually work in the areas of epistemology, aesthetics, um, and that sort of thing. And this became kind of a side document for me to work out issues of politics, but informed by those so, those same readings that I was doing in epistemology and aesthetics. And so, you know, it, it just sort of became this document. And then I think about six months ago or something, I realized that this, I was like, oh, this is 127 pages. Why don't I just... Um, turn it into a book. And now it's, now it's 200 pages. Um, things kind of ramped up at, at the end as, as the politics of COVID started ramping up. But um, yeah, so it just kind of became its, uh, and I didn't want to work a whole sy- you know, systemic kind of philosophy um, thing, you know, where you argue an idea uh, and you have this kind of logical order to it. I just wanted the chronology to be the book, because what was interesting to me was how things like the lead up to Trump's election and then his presidency flowed into what's happening now with the pandemic and the politics around that right now. So I didn't want to create this, you know, this systemic work of philosophy and instead just keep the chronology because it's the development of these different ideas. One thing I really appreciate about this approach is it it highlights the multiple ways that philosophy and philosophical thought, um, past, present thinkers and, and ideas that have come to us through the ages or, or I said are even being contemporary created in the contemporary period. It, it's an endeavor unto itself and it's a, it's a series of dialogues and communications um, often through in the written form, but in, in other kind of lectures and, and debates and, and so forth. But it's also functions as a set of tools to inform our experiences of things like social media, right? totally. of Donald Trump giving a speech or um, watching MSNBC or Fox News, right? And so, it, and I, I think that aspect of philosophy is often not stressed enough that it, it is not 
just people just sitting in or people just writing in academic journals back and forth, hammering down on these rather opaque and obscure concepts. I, I mean, some of it is that. And I think that's useful work, too. I'm not. But I just I think for most people, they don't realize. And this is something I think this book is going to do is to show that these are living concepts that very much can be useful in, in animating and shaping and helping us to frame what we're seeing um, presently. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's. I think you've captured it. Uh, and living is the key word. I mean, things are constantly evolving and changing. I, th- I think one of the things that um, I'm trying to get away from, and we we sort of covered this in the last discussion we had on your uh, podcast, is the difference between what something is and how we believe in something, or how we, uh, you know, that sort of more aspects of the psyche and how we're relating to things. So if you take social media for an for example, the Philosophical writing, and I, I see about this, is at the social level or at the technological level or at the political level, but treating these, treating social media as something that is. So it's kind of, you know, it's it's something that's kind of outside of us, that's this, you know, this massive influence in our lives. I'm taking a different approach. I'm trying to look at social media not as separate from us. But more and more, how it's integrating into our actual psyches, our actual ways of thinking, um, that affect who we are at the very core, whatever that is, right? So rather than that's why epistemology is important to me. So it's not just that this is something that we study at a distance, but that this is informing, like you said, the living movement of our ideas. That to me is what's really important, less so than trying to analyze what it is that social media is. Right. And I, I think this is good because one of the first points I wanted to turn to is, is this idea of epistemology. It, it's a word that I guess you know quite a few people are familiar with, but often we don't spend a lot of time really pondering the nature of epistemology. Um, and I thought about in the context when you were describing social media, because it, it clearly is, and particularly for people who have grown up, you know, using phones and, and mm-hmm. being on social media from a very young age, ways of knowing. I guess exactly, you know, and how they, you know, the world, um, and this goes back to um, kind of Neil Postman's work, and I forget, you know, Postman was drawing on someone else who had that notion of the medium is the message. I forget who McLuhan, that was. McLuhan, right? Yeah, and and we um, can which, add to that John Berger or John Berger, however you want to pronounce right. it. He had ways of seeing, right? Mm, and yeah. and you know, I think that um, I I came up in an age where in you know my university politics of media class we read Postman and he was yeah. talking about you know TV and how TV was oversimplifying things and making politics very trite, <laughs> sloganeering. Yep. And right. he was talking about like you know the nightly news is just dumbing us down because it tries to feed us all in, in twenty two minutes and it's like man, teach these kids these days. I'll tell you what, Jim, <laughs> twenty two minutes that's a lifetime. You right. Pay, yeah. You get them to focus for five minutes. Yeah. You've done a lot. Yeah. But, I mean, so that tells you the the kind of you know it, it is interesting, right? Like because Postman saying, "Man, twenty two minutes that you can't say anything in twenty two minutes," and that is in in the temporal horizons of your modal eighteen year old living in a kind of wealthy society, or, or even not. Um, twenty two minutes is a lifetime. Yeah. So uh, and. And that affects not just what they know, but how how they know. And I guess that's a good way to circle back to epistemology. So I always like to just start with the impossibly hard, but I think important starting point, at least in your view, James, what is epistemology? 
Yeah, I think there's different ways of thinking of it. And even even epistemology itself could be seen as, you know, I mean, classically, it's the study of knowledge, right? Or understanding. I mean, you know, this this old platonic question of, of um, what knowledge is, what understanding is. But I think what's often forgotten is that epistemology is a study of how we come to know something. And here it enters into more of the psychological and issues of belief um, and doubt. Um, you know, some of the questions that someone like William James was addressing, or even someone like Nietzsche was addressing, is how are we how are we coming to how are we coming to know something? And that's really to me the issue of social media. Neil Postman, you know, talking about the problems of attention with a twenty two minute news piece. Well, now. You know, I see the the kind of activities on social media. People are sort of scanning for words. They're scanning for trigger words and not really reading. Not not. It seems like very often not really fully integrating what the person is trying to say. And um, I think the problem of this, and this goes back to what we were talking about last time as well, is the problem of oppositional thinking. You're either in this mode or you're in this mode, or you support this thing, or you support this thing. So there seems to be a duality. And then a dialectics, a kind of platonic dialectics forms where you're just sort of hitting things back and forth, but people have become really intransigent in their beliefs. And those beliefs come to, you know, belief is something not just what develops in you, it's something you have before the idea is developing, before you come across whatever the knowledge or idea is that's being presented to you. Well, so from I, the I outset- wanna stop, I want to yeah. interrupt there because I think this is a really important um, point to kind of uh, drill down on just sure. a little bit. So, uh, because this seemed, this, this recalls of like what precedes what and talk about the episode on existentialism where we had um, Simone yeah. Lee on. That was uh, a great episode, by the way. Right, yeah. That. Well, and that, you know, this idea of like, you know, in the existentialist view, um, uh, existence precedes essence, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so forth. I said that right, right? Yeah. Existence, yeah. Okay, I don't want to sound like an idiot here, um, or right. more than more of one than I am. Right, okay. which is reversing the common idea of right, of like the, I guess yeah. Aristotle, like where essence, right, is exactly what Aristotle, yeah, comes first. Okay, mm -hmm. but what you're saying is, and, and it, it struck me, and that's why I kind of wanted to, to. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's an important distinction. You're in Please. your kind of understanding. We bring beliefs to kind of the public sphere or or the you know, communicative sphere, the sphere of discussion and dialogue and, and, or interaction with news or other media or, you know, various medium. And we map those beliefs onto the information we're interacting with, which again, kind of turns maybe the, I don't know, standard model. I don't know, for lack of a better term on its head, where the idea is we kind of go out and experience things and we read media. And based on that, we form beliefs. Well, to me, I think it's organic. I think um, this is why I prefer a non-dialectical way of thinking of things and a more, um, you know, I read a lot of these process philosophers like Deleuze, Bergson, and people like that. And from this perspective, the issue of becoming supersedes that of being. So then when you think of it in that sense, then something like belief, and I think William James taps into this as well, Something like belief is something that you both bring to an idea and something that comes out of the idea. And so any experience, any encounter you have with an idea, it's both preceded by the belief that has formed in you. And then 
you know, ideally in the uh, pedagogical or I guess didactic sense, what comes out, you know, something comes after that, something changes after that. But I think what's happening with social media is that second part isn't happening. I, I don't think that um, people are willing, and I don't, this, we could say this is psychological, we, we could say this is institutional, but if there seems to be a pervasive unwillingness to change the belief after the after the fact, because I think we're so well trained in dialectics, where there's opposition, contradiction, negation, to these two things. So what I'm proposing is that we have to look at belief in the sense of an organic or a processional thing, where it kind of can flourish and open up to new ideas and open up new pathways of thinking about things, rather than these these fixations that we have that are passing through us at a massively accelerated rate. Mm. And I think acceleration, that's a, that's a key word that's, there. Speed is a big aspect of this. Well, and one thing that comes to mind, and this is just a kind of, I don't know, um, I, you know, we, we, as you do, I, I teach students. And so I'm, I'm constantly in search of like metaphors and, mm-hmm. and ways to kind of uh, repackage a, a set of ideas. So when you were talking about this, a metaphor that came to my mind is like maybe within each of us, we can imagine like we have two kind of beasts or two animals that are hungry. And like one is our beliefs about what is in the world or what, what, how things are, or what is right or what, what should be, or, or, who, you know, whatever, what, how, how things should be organized and, and so forth. And we have like another animal or, or some being creature in us that is like kind of has a, has a mode of like a self-skeptic, like to, to put it kind of crudely, like, you know, this idea deep down, it's like, man, maybe I'm just full of shit and I have no clue. And like, we have that mm-hmm. residing in us in, in, as yeah. well. And like to take this metaphor a step further, the way we are processing and obtaining and, and, and communicating and receiving communications is like hyper feeding the, the belief animal but mm-hmm. also in the process, starving the the self skeptic animal is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's it's so like that that there because we have those two sides, right? right I mean, right. I don't. I know you don't like dialectics, so I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, we kind of as a metaphor, we have these two sides, right? These like yeah. you know, like the, all of us fundamentally probably have this idea that like maybe I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, right? Why I do think I know? That's, any- I think everybody has that. I think, and myself included, I think that's a pervasive attitude right now that we've we've all kind of got in this accelerated existence is we have no fucking idea what's going on and we don't even know how we're thinking about things, but we kind of assure ourselves that we, that we do, because I don't know that we have the time for all of this information. So that's, that skeptical element has, is, I feel from the technologies that we have and from the, the social pressures we're putting on each other, that the skeptical is being, drawn away from us. And and this is why I focus on uh, a critique of what we could name as liberalism, which has gone through a change in contemporary times, I think. I think something that's going on here, and I, do, I think it does relate because this book, um, and this is, I think, hopefully where we're going to end up today talking about science um, and and the, the role of science and scientific knowledge in, in our society and, and, and the roles it plays and, and the positive and, and negatives of that and so forth. But before we do that, and while we're on this realm of epistemology, because one thing I think that another way to frame epistemology of, of many 
um, as you noted, is this idea of how do we separate, you know, and I, I don't think it, it wasn't, I mean, this was the, the, the driving force of several Platonic dialogues, but I think it was a matter even in the pre-Socratic thinkers, to the best of my knowledge, this idea of how do we separate knowledge from belief? And, and I think that sounds so profound, but, uh, you know, on one level, but it's really like, how do you separate, like, this is something that's true for everyone. This is something that is actionable. This is something that is, you know, can be repeated um, and will come up the same over and over again versus like, I'm just, you know, some dude at a bar drinking beer and like, this is what I, this is how I see it, right. you know, which would be a kind of like a model of belief. And like, right. And I think for philosophers and for epistemologists, um, this has been an, an important thing. Like what what makes my knowledge of, of some sort of status, of some sort of, you know, elevated may not be the right word, of, of some class that makes it more than just the guy at the bar telling you like telling hmm. you how it is. Kevin, this question is basically the, the history of epistemology, I, right. I, I would say. Yeah. yeah. But, and, but you know, no, go ahead. Well, well and I think too, to, to, just, to, just to put a finer point on it, I mean, I think this is too what goes on a lot when we talk about social world. And, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm roughly, you know, I'm not a big fan of the term, but I'm in the social sciences. I, I have a, you know, my background is in political science, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. right. And I think the there's a kind of sensitivity in the social sciences because you know and i don't want to i'm not trying to reify the natural sciences but they do have the ability of like well how do i know you know um electromagnetism works all right turn your freaking tv on hmm. you know okay there it goes you got it hmm. right or how do i know like send a rocket ship up oh you flew a plane recently yep aerodynamics checks out you know like social sciences we don't they don't have that and so that, and, and, and when we talk about what is knowledge in terms of political power and struggles over what is the correct belief or what is the correct way, it's on a much less firm foundation. And, th mm -hmm. and again, that's not to reify the natural sciences, but I'm speaking more comparatively, not absolutely. And mm -hmm. I think that is for, for the social sciences, there is this kind of prickliness and defensiveness um, around these questions as to what separates political science from like, you know, the guy, the guy who reads or woman who reads the newspaper every day and, and, you know, has a couple of, has a thing or two to say. Yeah, this is a great question. Well, just to, I didn't mean to be dismissive of your earlier question about the difference between belief and knowledge. Um, it is, no, a huge, it is a huge question, but just to go back to that a little bit, there was, there's the idea of, um, what was it? Justified true belief in Plato. Um, and he goes through a whole you know, he goes through this in his dialogues to try to figure this out. And it's very mystical for Plato. You know, it's it, it's connected to the idea of anamnesis or the knowledge that um, that cycles back from, you know, previous lives and things like this. It's just pretty out there. But I think more germane is, 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 is the idea of doxa. So this Greek word that means, I think it means opinion. It means sort of, it's the opinion of the masses, basically, or it's the common opinion, I think. So, you know, um, doxa is the common opinion of a society. And so this, I think, is what we're playing with when we talk about um, the question that you're asking. So doxa would be in the realm of society and sort of social discourse. And then what you're talking about in terms of social science would be something that is a, that is a rigorous discipline, um, you know, and you're, you teach about it, you publish about it, you um, create models and you create concepts about it and you work through those through publishing and, 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 you know, 
social sciences are, are, are very much also, I think, wrapped up, I mean, it's not my area, but wrapped up in the quantitative methods as well, um, you know, test subjects and things like that. Um, so I guess the difference might be the rigor um, of, of, of the two. What's happened with technology, I think, is that, and I don't, th- I don't think there's any sideism to this, is that there that what we're taking as the rigor of science has been transposed into the doxa? So there's an overlap and a kind of um, you know inseparability between the two things that is really kind of messing up our thinking. Why I think this is fascinating having this background in in you know training um, mm-hmm. in the social science and political science is how much these kinds of issues, because it's, it's not, not all social scientists or people that are in departments of political science buy onto this enterprise. I'm, I'm somewhat, um, you know, I'm, I don't know, I'm not, I don't have hard beliefs, but I'm, I'm, I don't like the term if it, if it means like trying to create a quote unquote science of the society or, or politics, um, if it means a systematic study, as you kind of alluded to. All right, that's fine. Um, I guess that is, you know, something different. But how, it, more importantly for me, besides all this kind of boring inside baseball stuff that goes <laughs> on in academic departments about, uh, you know, what is the right way to do social science, mm-hmm. I think what, the, what is at the basis of that is what is, it, it filters down or, or is reflected in popular discourse, right? And mm-hmm. one book totally. that, that- That was my point, basically, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, no, and and one one book that has really and and I you know it didn't make a huge splash, I don't think, and it, he's written so many books. Um, I guess it, 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 you know I don't know. I just stumbled across it. I like the title. Um, it shows you pick a good title, right? Titles are great. Yeah, they're yeah, very it, important. It, called, it, it was by Anthony Giddens. It's called the Consequences of Modernity. And so in the book, what Giddens kinds of argues is that when we try to, you know, of taking this model of the scientific method kind of writ large and applying it to society, um, he points out that, the, you know, kind of the ultimate in, in, in its purest form aesthetic of science is, is a certain skepticism, is an idea that all knowledge is provisional. And he's saying that that has profound consequences. So he, his argument is that what we often call postmodernity is actually the consequences of modernity, of trying to take this methodology and this mechanism and map it onto society, um, because it opens up the possibility of moving towards a kind of destabilizing, I don't know, nihilism is a strong word, but it's like all everything is contingent, right? Like we don't know for sure. Well, and, if, if and, you don't mind me interrupting for a second, I think you mean the skepticism has been carried into postmodernity, right? Right. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, that, that, that element of it. And mm-hmm. I mean, what I think that to put a little bit more um, kind of uh, structure around this, I mean, one of the examples he gives is how, how also like applying this method to society is, is a somewhat of a different kind of enterprise. And he uses a a really simple, but I think revealing example of like divorce. And Mm -hmm. he said that like, if you, you know, if you study and produce data on divorce, that is itself going to interact with the rate of divorce, Mm -hmm. right? That, that, you know, that the, the knowledge that we produce and disseminate about the social world becomes itself a determinant factor in shaping the social world. And we, and we, I think we did discuss this, uh, this came up in um, our previous discussion, but I think that, uh, and when we get into the kind of the great COVID wars of the last several years, um, I think that kind of aspect of maybe a misappropriation, but nonetheless an, an appropriation of 
this kind of fundamental skepticism that underpins the scientific enterprise, at least um, in, in, at a you know, philosophy of science level, when you um, move that into the realm of social knowledge, it opens itself up to create this kind of constant sense that it can be weaponized and wielded. Mm-hmm. That's, I guess, the way. I don't know. What, 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 yeah, that, that would be kind of a, a model that I think came to mind when thinking about the framework of your book. Yeah, I think that um, what you're describing, these are aspects that I that I don't really get into specifically because again, I'm 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 not really working through the institutional um, aspects of that. I, I I'm I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm I'm liking what you're saying, um, mm. but the way I'm approaching science is, and maybe this resonates with what you're saying a little bit. Again, because I'm dealing mostly with epistemologies, what are we doing with science? Like, what what are what is social media doing with science? That means us. Um, what are we doing with the idea of science? So then it becomes a philosophical question, right? And I think that in terms of sort of our 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 psyches and our beliefs, is what we're doing is we're forming a belief about the value of science, and then working that into our discourses. And I think that there's a um, there's an attitude to this because I think again everybody's kind of scared right now, <laughs> you know. I mean, we had our nine eleven scared period. Now we've got our COVID Trump scared period, or our Trump COVID scared period. Um, I think what we're what we're doing is, with in all of that uncertainty, um, we're shifting over to science as God. I mean, Agamben talks about this. There's been many people who have said this, that the shift in liberalism has been away from um, in the individual, and it's become today in a hyper-accelerated way, only the past few years, of this really firm belief in in science um, and the and the belief in in experts and voices of authority, and that that's kind of become kind of the psyche of this interest in science. So, I mean, you were talking about you know rocket ships and and all that kind of stuff, and it's great, and science is fucking great, right? I mean, it, it does a lot of cool stuff and a lot of very important stuff. And a lot of uh, awful stuff. I mean- Yeah, know, yeah, true. And a lot of awful stuff too. When I was talking about, yeah. I mean, what I was saying is at least like they can, they, there can be tangible representations of it, right? In a way true. that the social sciences maybe don't have. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. I, I may have uh, misunderstood you there. Yeah. So bit, it wasn't like, wow, science is great. Look at this. Right. It's like, it's like, well, you want to know, like we, I'm saying this works and you say, well, prove to me that it works. And then you, you know, mm-hmm. you fly in an airplane. It's like my right. theory of aerodynamics works because your airplane flew and landed. Right. Um, whether or not the, the, the underlying, um, use of that is good. But I, I think what, and when you said like, I really liked the, the focus on, how science is used, because I think that also ties back to something that's an, an endless source of frustration. Reading a lot of contemporary debates and news is how bereft it is of any consideration, um, serious consideration of ethics, right? Because science, true. even in its best form, does not tell you how it should be used. And so I really like that idea of use, right? That ethics is what we have to decide how something should be used. Right. So, but I would take that from a different perspective. So, there's the ethics of the science in in its method, which I I agree is a very important thing to consider in all of the sciences. But what I'm what I'm more focusing on again is not necessarily science itself, but how we are thinking science. Mm. So, this is the philosophical question, right? How are we thinking about science? And this, I said that science is the new god. I mean, if 
if conservatism is a belief in in the in the traditional structures of religion, then liberalism is the is the need to counter that, but without having its own messiah or its own kind of creation myth to do things. So so it moves liberalism moves to science as a means of answering the unanswerable. And so we really affix our habits of thought to the scientific disciplines, trusting that they're, you know, that they're working in pure forms and that they're unadulterated by any kind of outside interests. Um, and that they're going to give us the answers. That's the thing that I see pervasive in social media, in liberal discourses. In in that sense too. I mean, not just in a, in a kind of macro sense, but even in a micro sense. I I think that's where. And I'm not necessarily saying it has to be a, a system, but um, we're all you know. There's no way to escape having to base decisions on ethics that I think you point out. Uh, and, and and this isn't like, I, I'm not saying this in a nihilistic way. I'm saying they, they, they don't have a, you know, they don't have any anchor or foundation um, to attach themselves to. I mean, well, you could say like, well, I, I do this because I think it's the best for humanity, but someone else could have an idea, you know, an ethical view to say, well, no, you should do this because it's the best for humanity, because it's ultimately about, well, what is best for humanity? What is best for human beings? Well, that's Right. I mean, you know, yeah, but and, if you if you go back to Nietzsche, that's decided by the people in power. That's deci- power decides what is the ethical. This is Nietzsche's truth and lie in an extra moral sense. Power is going to decide that question. Right. right? So I mean, so what? No, go ahead. I mean, yes and no, um, because I, I think also that 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 we you know people live lives and make decisions in the in that are not guided by that kind of power. I mean, I, I think we all are forced to make a, a, a series of ethical choices um, in our own lives that may be informed or, or shaped yeah, this, in some but way. This, yeah, this goes to my point. I think it's not only that power doesn't work top down. Power is in our habits, right? So whatever is the, in, in Nietzsche's sense, the, the, the power is more like a force, right? It's something that pervades society. And then we take on the mantle of what is the power element that dominates the dogmatic idea. And science right now is the dogmatic idea. Science is the idea that rules currently. And it's in the liberal discourse. And the liberal discourse dominates currently. Um, and we should probably define what we mean by liberalism. Right. No, or yeah, or at least try to. I mean, that, that yeah, is maybe... Exactly. Just, it's like a step less... Um, complex in epistemology in terms of pinning <laughs> it down, but um, totally, yeah, it's become such a meta theory. Um, yeah, and and in some ways, I mean, I read an interesting book about um, uh, it was a kind of a critique of Rawlsian um, Rawls's mm-hmm. kind of um, uh, political theory, and Rawls was a famous um, liberal theorist, and one one of the points the the author made was that what liberalism is 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 so adept at is um, subsumption that any it's very good at repositioning critiques and then kind of swallowing them up. And one of the points she made is that over a long time, that's one of the reasons why liberalism becomes so kind of like, like a, like a, you know, has so many different facets and it's just this huge omnibus theory. The way I'm thinking, just, just to even back up a little more, the, the way I'm thinking liberalism is in the, um, is in the enlightenment sense that it's it's the it's the promise of the individual to overcome you know the controls of the church and things like that and um, 
you know, it's so liberalism came to science, came to um, all these different aspects aspects of lived experience. Um, you know, really a celebration of the idea of liberating oneself, right? But what's happening now is that liberalism has um, become itself, I think, dogmatic in these ways that we're seeing more hyper than ever, you know, faster than ever um, today with with technology. I think that there's it's it's being um, co-opted by the structures of power that we've come to believe are better than um, the powers that are you know more traditional, like the church. So this is this is why I question liberalism's effort and its discourse um, is is what kind of liberalism are we building? It seems like it's one that's trying to eliminate skepticism, which was originally at its roots. It's trying to eliminate uh, creativity. Um, it's trying to wash away uncertainties. All of these things, to me, um, work against the idea of what I think is. Uh, unimportant ethics that I'm sort of thinking of as creative ethics. The idea of creativeness in ethics, creative uh, thinking, creative action, um, you know, creative art uh, as a way of developing new ideas that was the original promise of liberalism, rather than this conformity and this element of control and correction that is happening in a Trumpist pandemic kind of environment. Right. Well, and hit I, me back. <laughs> no, no, no. I just think, I mean, to me that this is where I, I mean, with liberalism, I think there's, there's a few things going on like historically. I mean, the first and foremost, and this is where I think the history of liberalism as, as a, as a system of thought is important, um, is that of course, uh, in its original sense, by most of its proponents, not all, um, there's some notable exceptions, what was seen as, when we say freedom of the individual, it didn't mean all individuals, right? True, so that's, true. I mean, liberalism Absolutely. Absolutely. from its beginning was, was and, and in some ways it drew upon kind of classic Republican ideas where, it, you know, there there is like a certain set of people, generally men, generally wealthy men, who had the breeding or the knowledge or the sophistication or the civilizational standing to um, be treated in this way to to be an individual right and I think that is 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 not just an irrelevant part of its history but an important kind of piece of coding that has like persisted right that that it's not just a question of like oh all people are equal and, and everyone's free those words did not originate in a sense of a, of a universalism, right? And so, mm -hmm. and so one one way I've I've thought about, but I think it was aimed towards a universalism, towards a promise of universalism. But as it a didn't, political, but it didn't arise out of that. Yeah, I yeah. mean, maybe I would say that for my view, and this is my view. I mean, it, to the extent that that was true, it would be what um, Hume called a useful fiction. Right, I mean, it's it's useful to say that as a fiction, right? It 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 allows one to present oneself as magnanimous and as a as a kind of um, just and and fair and 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 kind of open political um, system. But but underlying that is obviously often much more clear distinctions in in terms of caste and and power divides. Um, True, in, in all around the world, right? And so right. I I think there's a. a in some ways, um, you know, I think that's what the, what the kids these days would call gaslighting. I mean, there's a certain gaslighting element where you're saying, "Oh, everyone's equal," but like the reality is so different. Like liberalism is 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 almost a, a persistent enterprise of of massive gaslighting, 
Right. Hey, everyone's free and equal. And right. it's, and if you look at society, I mean, that's just, it, and I, I'm, my background is in international relations and international relations theory. And I mean, you can say the same thing about the state system. Theoretically, all states are equally sovereign and equal, but that's just, it's ludicrous. It's a joke, right? right. In, in practice, right? And I mean, so to me, that's kind of why I, I find liberalism is, is, is a bit of a mirage and, and mm-hmm. almost like a canard that, that, you know, obscures the nature and and maybe that's that's the the Marx side of me speaking, but it, it I mean because that was Marx's criticism and and as as, as was Rousseau's that this is all a, this is all a sham, right? This is the, these people are not genuinely dedicated to to human liberty and and their actions make that clear. And I'm not saying that as like like I think that's in that has very important implications for how liberalism operates in the world today. Mm-hmm. Um, we should say as well, by the way, that liberalism is not the same thing as liberal, like a liberal person. Right. Not it's like not li- political. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, um, um, not like uh, a politician. Right. Or, 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 or in the United States context. In the United States, right. it means there kind you of, go. you know, left of left center, um, you know, all, you know, and then like, a, what, what would they say? Like an extreme liberal in America would be like a social Democrat. Right. right, but that we're not using it in that sense. We're using it right in in the in the kind in the of, historical sense. Well, yeah. in the political, yeah, in the, in the political theory sense, right. And mm-hmm. there is some overlap with this idea, right, of centering the inter- individual, de-emphasizing um, the role of religion or um, systems of religion in governance, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and and making religion a personal matter, very Protestant mm-hmm. kind of idea, like religion mm-hmm. isn't a public matter; it's a personal matter, um, and so forth. And, you know, so clearly like the business wing of the Republican Party, to the extent that it still exists, I mean, is liberal, right? Um, uh, there, right. there was a book by, I forget the guy's name, um, uh, something Deneen. Um, he's, he's now, he's a conservative political theorist and he wrote a book called Why Liberalism Failed. And I, I read it. It was good. Um, I'm, mm. I'm not a huge, mm. I didn't sign on on everything. And he kind of provides more like a conservative communitarian kind of critique of liberalism. Um, but I think mm-hmm. especially the first chapter and kind of laying out the kind of liberal monolith and how it encompasses, you know, a large swath of the Republican Democratic Party was good um, in in the American context. And I think that's yeah. So in the in the definition we're using, you could definitely include again like business Republicans and and conserv mm-hmm. and kind of moderate Democrats would all probably fall in this this category of like you know classic kind of political liberals. Is that about right? Yeah, I think so. And and I'm 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 glad the way that you are uh, introducing the impurities <laughs> uh historically um to the idea of liberalism because it's it's always full of impurities and and um I mean even setting aside the critique of it um even even if we think even if we were to advocate for a liberalism um it's important to address the the imp- the impurities that you're talking mm. about. Um, and I, when I think that's where, you know, the question, that's where like you have the Rousseau and, and kind of Marx um, critique where, the, and that's kind of, I guess, where I tend to fall down. It's like theirs is like, that's the, the, to use the modern parlance, like it's a feature, not a bug, right? Mm-hmm. That, that you know, claiming universalism, claiming individual freedom, and then you be you, wielding that to create wholly unequal and unjust societies is a feature of liberalism rather than like an aberration. And so then, so then, what I'm trying to do is um, is is trying to find again this idea of a creative ethics is to try to tease out the ways in which um, that inherent that adherence to the habits of liberalism um, that we have in our psyches can be broken uh, through creative action. 
So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. And it, and it annoys people when I when I bring these people when I, sorry when I bring these things up. Um, there's al- there's always resistance to me saying these ideas because I'm not showing an allegiance. I'm trying to tease out um, a break, you know, um, a kind of rupture or a different way of thinking about what what it is that's possible. Things like you know, like I would give some some examples of of ways of breaking through are things like Occupy Wall Street. Now there's some theories on that being structured. I don't, I don't know about that. It seemed to me to be fairly organic. Um, and Black Lives Matter in the original um, way that it was kind of happening organically, um, and then including what we had last spring, um, this, this organic kind of uprising that later became a bit institutionalized. Black Lives Matter later became something where there were the, there was you know kind of as these re- if we think of things in terms of revolutionary sense this is why I'm not a Marxist or a Hegelian if we think of things in a revolutionary sense it's always going to be two people emerge who have different ideas of what Black Lives Matter is and they're going to fight over it um, and there was there was one and I forget the, the the people involved but there was one that was more in defense of the codification of what it is that the mission is and then the one that was a little more organic. Um, you know, so these, eventually the institution of liberalism is going to come up in these organic movements and try to define the terms. And I think that we should be continually fighting against those fixations. I think that, that, you know, I was looking for, I used, um, uh, looking for a way to maybe make it more concrete and, and there it is. And, um, I forget the name of the book. Um, uh, I, I, I'll put it in the show notes, uh, the great, great critique of kind of Rawlsian notions of liberalism and this idea of subsumption. I think that's a really good mm-hmm. example of that in action is Black Lives Matter and how liberalism mm-hmm. basically tried to co-opt and subsume it. Oh, same thing happened with Occupy right, Wall Street. Right, right. No, you're really, you know, you, yeah, well, that's, that's what liberals say. Liberal, again, in the, in the, traditional sense that we're talking about it. Yeah, that's exactly, we, right. we're, we, yeah, we agree people shouldn't be mistreated. You're really one of us. And, you know, uh-huh. the, uh, not to be too. Um, uh, okay. Snippy. So let me, well, let me throw uh, the, the, to me though, the symbolic, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Um, you know, the symbolic yeah. like last step in the attempted co-optation and, and thankfully it was, it was seen for what it was and, and, and was pretty much a failure was um, Nancy Pelosi and whoever else um, in the Democrat oh, wearing God. those African wearing um, the, tribal, the, yeah. you know, um, garb. I, forget, I don't awful. know the name of them, um, but yeah, that was awful. Yeah. And then we get um, Pepsi ads and Starbucks ads, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, and they do this with, with, uh, and I, again, I hate to use this term, but wokeism, they, that, you know, how, um, you know, these institutions are, uh, are these corporations are integrating the sort of free spirit of resistance into their corporate identity, which is just infuriates me. And you, and another example of this with, with Occupy Wall Street. Do you remember with Occupy Wall Street? We may have talked about this last time, but the media insisted on the people in 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 the park defining their goals, right? Because that's how liberalism deals with things. What is it that you're? What is it? that I can package into something that I can make into, you know, that I can wrap into the liberalist kind of um, way, which is, you know, which is what the media tries to do, tries to pull everything into the center so that it can define the terms and then create two oppositional points of view. So Occupy Wall Street died 
once the terms were codified. Well, I, all right, I want to push back. This is a good good place for a little pushback because I think on one level that's true. So I'm not I'm not disagreeing with that that kind of um, recounting of events, but I, I guess I would push back in the sense of I, I you know, I, I as it's become clear, I'm no fan of liberalism, but I think this is pointing to a, a much deeper problem. And, um, you know, I'm going to drop the P word. I mean, this is the, the Platonic issue, right? I mean, this is the question of the Republic and, and a host of other works by Plato, right? How we can recognize exactly what you said, that moment you move from spontaneity and organic kind of flourishing in, in human vitality to systematization, systemization and organization, it loses something. It becomes almost like dead. It becomes bureaucratic. Um, but if you don't do that, even in under any system, um, without some set of of organizations, without some you know rough hierarchy, without some you know purpose um, to use the term telos, some idea of where you're going towards. Yeah. It, it right. you know it's so uh, to me, and this is kind of where the rub is with like existentialism and politics. And and we, you brought up Nietzsche, so maybe we can go back to Nietzsche. I think a lot of what Nietzsche says is 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 right on and. You know, if you want to kind of experience life in a radical way and experience like a, a certain creative flourishing and, and an urgency and, and a joy and, and an unmitigated kind of experience of life, I think you could, you know, go a lot worse places than, than the writing and thinking of Friedrich Nietzsche. But if you want to create a sustained political and social movement, um, that might not be the best way to do it. But, no matter but what see, you're this no, is under thing. any guise, liberalism or otherwise. I mean, I just, I don't. How, but how do you know that? I mean, so. I would say so there's a, certain, if I could push a lot back of history against... on my side with that point. Um, yeah. I, okay. Yeah. Well, but but I don't know in the form that. Um, so just to push back a little bit, I, I don't think that this has been tried because I don't think that our minds, because we are so habituated by this kind of. Uh, oppositional thinking or, or dualistic or, you know, this dialectical exercise, I don't think that we are very well schooled in um, organic thinking or germinal type of thinking. Um, so I don't know. I think that there, I think that there have been attempts to do this that always do get pulled into that. Um, so I, I think my, my response to that would be, we would have to again, um, you know, Nietzsche. Again, we would have to go over that. We would have to go over that stage um, in order to in order to make it happen. I think yeah. since, since we've centered him, and, and fair enough, he's 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 a good a good person to center um, for these discussions. I mean, let's talk about Nietzsche then. In you know, in in the in the total sense, because I mean, he did in some ways create his own dialectic, and and it was that like most people are pretty. You know, they're kind of to use the present term, they're sheep. They're 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 not smart. They're not capable. So most people are going to live mundane, boring lives as they should. But some people are great and are are able to transcend that. But I mean, by no means was are you he, reading will to power? Well, yeah. So was, but by no means. Yeah. Well, will to power is. I don't. I don't know if I really trust that. But I, that I mean, I think. I think the, the not just in will to power but i think in other places it's clear that he does not see this as an avenue open to the masses i mean i i think that's available in, in other writings beyond the will to power right i mean he was he didn't see this as a popular way to live is that fair characterization mm -hmm. i mean i don't think he was 
I don't know. I I mean, I guess you can read you can read any philosopher in, right. in different ways, and you and you can sort of pick apart the things that are maybe the the moral failings of any philosopher. Um, but I don't I don't read I don't read that when I when I read Nietzsche. I I read the the Nietzsche that I read is the one who's advocating, and this sounds so untimely, but the Nietzsche who is who is striving for joy, the Nietzsche who is striving for expressions of joy to break out, right? And that's you know the 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 Ubermensch isn't somebody who's manufactured. No, right? it's 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 the emergence. Right. What? So so what? So this is why I like to deal with things. You know what I'm calling conditions, and I think we talked about this last time too. But what are the conditions in which you know some kind of change can can flourish? And I think that what we're what we're having a problem with in today's society is um, we continue to exist in a state of punishment. Rather than in a state of encouragement, what I think is that, um, well, one, I, I guess you know, just just to to, to circle back to to the issue mm-hmm. of Nietzsche, I mean, definitely the, the whole concept in in the genealogy of morals of of like basically slave morality, right? That I mean, that mm-hmm. whole concept is that it's predicated on the notion that for most people, that's what they're going to adopt. Right is, mm-hmm. is 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 that most people? But everybody adopts uh, resentment. I mean, resentment is a is a condition. Right, right. But it's it's pervades everything. That's that's why uh, what I mean by we have to stop thinking about power so much and start thinking about forces. So so the kind of you know I'm reading him as a psychologist, and he's talking about resentment. Resentment is a psyche. Bad conscience is a psyche. Right, that can right? that can lead to great things, right? So that's an interesting kind of paradox, right? Well, resentment is never the okay. So if we want to talk about that aspect of Nietzsche and the idea of resentment and and um, the genealogy, you know, it's it's the idea that what we have with someone like Trump and Trumpism is is the victory of it's the triumph of the forces of negation. It's the triumph of the forces of reactivity. So reactivity is the problem. Reacting to something is the problem with Nietzsche. Um, And so again, rather than this dialectical reactivity to the problem, what Nietzsche is advocating instead is an, is a, an uprising. I forget the German word, uh, is, is a kind of breakthrough, um, it might be Ursprung, but there's another word. Um, the breaking through of of the joyful idea. That's what the gay science no, is. I, yeah, and but I'm saying there is it. It is in some ways. Um, it it shares, and, and maybe I'm going to upset you, but I mean it does share with no. liberalism and a, a, a kind of deep individualism, right? I mean, that's kind of what I was trying to stress with this idea, this notion that most people are downtrodden and and they're not great, and they they make this you know Christianity and his kind of telling of Western history is used as an ethical system to pull down those who are in positions of authority and and make them serve the interest of the masses, right? Or, or something along those mm-hmm. lines. But what's interesting, right, and in, in the story, the people who are in positions of power aren't, aren't you know, models either. And so mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. his, you know, and in some ways it, it was embodied in his own life and, and, you know, how he lived is that like you just, it's almost like a dropping out, right? There's like a kind of like you... No, I don't. I don't agree with that. Yeah, I don't think there's a dropping out. That's mm. not a Ken Kesey kind of right. thing. Um, it's it's um, no, but or I mean, we have to, to abide by social strictures. I mean, and that that is a, a great path, but that that is not necessarily a path that is conducive to um, social transformation. I I think you have to. I think you have to start with 
a question. Mm -hmm. You have to start with an inquiry. You have to start with some skepticism. And that's not dropping out. That's, um, that's offering the question that hasn't yet been asked. And that's the most important thing. I mean, I think that our, sort of our tension that we're going through mm. here is, is I think you're, you're, you're seeking an advocacy in Nietzsche. And I'm reading, or, you know, and tell me if I'm wrong, I'm reading that Nietzsche, the diagnostician. No, and, and I should, I should, I'm going to cede a huge amount of, of, of intellectual ground here, as I should. I mean, I am a casual reader of Nietzsche. You're, you're a, someone that's well more steep, so I'm going to defer. I, I'm, I'm, well, I'm not an and, and I think but in some ways we're using Nietzsche as a, as a foil or as a way to yes. discuss, and that's yeah, a good yeah, way yeah. to do it. Because, so I, because this is what we do with philosophy, right? We try, we, we, we read this stuff that kind of fuels the, I mean, the idea is to sort of create the next idea. That's, that's the, the ideal of working through philosophy is to come through, at least in the sense of Deleuze, who I, who I love, is, is, is what are you going to make of this? What are you making of all of this? You can't just cite uh, literature as evidence for something that already exists. For Deleuze, that's, that's the wrong thing to do. You have to create, you have to read the stuff and create from it. And so what I'm trying to suggest by diagnosing things rather than advocating things is let's just do the inquiry, right? Let's not, <laughs> because in social media, what you see is, is, a, is an abandonment of the inquiry. You see either you're on this side or you're on that side. Either it's this identity or that identity. Choose a side. That's fucking George Bush during the Iraq war, right? Leading up to the Iraq war. That's what the liberal... Idea has become to me, right. and, but I, I guess for me, and this is, and you know, we, we can. Uh, I don't, you know, I can just um, make this point on my own. We, we'll, we'll leave. Uh, we'll leave Nietzsche uh, for another time. But uh, <laughs> you know, there is an aspect to political action, and that's something that uh, you cited. Um, Black Lives Matter. You cited um, <laughs> Occupy Wall Street. Occupy. There is, you know, a matter of solidarity, and solidarity is yes. about creating, and it is. It is a there is a bit of a paradox, but it, there is an organicism of creating a social whole of of dissolution totally. of the self, right? That yeah. that I mean that to me is one of the more pernicious aspects of liberalism. We've we've talked about in other venues is is this juxtaposition of the self and society, right? Mm -hmm. And that there is there in in that you know I know you you become interested in kind of Confucian and some Taoist thought and, and so forth, and that to me is always one of the intriguing aspects of Confucian thought is that dissolution of the self into kind of a set of, of, of established kind of social hierarchies is a source of, in this way of viewing the world, is a way, a path to freedom. Whereas in the liberal right. view, I agree with that. the separation of the self. And that's, that's kind mm -hmm. of where I, I said not a criticism, but where I find some limitations in Nietzsche's thought is I do see that strain of, of, of kind of reifying the individual and, and not just Nietzsche, other existentialists as well. Um, mm -hmm. At the expense well, that is, yeah, of that's part of the existentialist program. Well, yeah, at true. the expense of recognizing the importance of community. community and 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 what I would call like a a liberation of submission that liberation submission right like there's not there's submission like I'm you know and like this is I think a tension in, in some of the stuff you're talking about there is submission like and I know you're, you this is something you you weigh in on it and I think you're absolutely right about like this is my team and I'm just going to back them no matter what and there's a pernicious side of that but but I mean there is a good version of that of submission to the community well this is freud freud's civilization and its discontents right it's it's this it's this sort of arranging I don't want to say opposing but it's this arrangement of the individual and civilization mm. and they clash um and you know so 
what happens is you get this again, you get this uh, resentment mm. of the individual, and this is what's playing out in Trumpist COVIDism. Right? <laughs> Can we do Trump- that? Yeah, no, that, um, of course. Is this kind of resentment um, of the of the individual against the mandates of civilization? Um, so people, and and what happens is the problem. Is, so I I would, for my part, I would. I don't like the word submission because Freud talks about this is once we have submitted our sense of individuality to the state, and believe me, I don't want to be advocating the individual. Um, but once we do give up our sense of individual power to the state, we create more anxiety for ourselves. We sort of supplement our desires. We sort of um, produce different kinds of violence, different kinds of control. Right. right? So, so, What's happening is, and I do not want to uh, align with any kind of conservative, you know, right wing kind of thing. But I, I again, if I'm studying the idea of belief and the idea of how people are coming to believe things, I think there is a belief that the state uh, that once was Trumpist and now Bidenist has kind of, even though it's all still Trumpism, but that's a whole other issue, uh, that the Biden kind of control now is something that they're rebelling against because it is the state that doesn't see their interests. Now, of course, that's a whole other field. And I, you know, I, I don't do any of that alt-right kind of uh, right-wing stuff. I don't engage in that at all. But there is a belief there, I think, of the, of the state uh, overreaching against the individual, right? No, and I think, well, and I think this this is a good point that where where we can make some um, important distinctions because what I'm thinking about is 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 there's a whole, and this is actually the, the the issue is that there's a whole other set of ways to engage in solidarity, engage in mm. what I call like a liberating submission, right? To to use a contradiction yeah. term, and and that's what I see those people who were camping out in the cold in, in New York City, but also in Philadelphia and Chicago and other places, um, were empowered in solidarity. That has nothing to do with the state. So the, I think that there is solidarity and submission in a liberating kind of way. Uh, maybe submission is too loaded of a word, of, a, of, an, of an integration, right? Of, of understanding that. And that's where I said that that's pernicious kind of aspect of liberalism is this, like there's the individual in society and the juxtaposition itself creates a framework that that in some ways is itself a source of resentment in a Nietzschean sense, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. if you if yeah. you um, reject that duality altogether and and recognize that there's a, a complex integration that I, that you are an individual, but you are at the same time a full a fully integrated member of a, of a of a society and a variety of groups and and social entities mm-hmm. above and beyond the state, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that allows for, I think, a much wider, and, and, and I think it's important because it does get to the, the kind of question of how do you create an organization that functions and, and provides certain functions that political systems need to provide um, without giving up kind of the, the aspect of spontaneity and creativity. And I, I think that's a really, you know, and I think it's great. I mean, it's important that you're, you're, you're homing in on it because I think that's a, that is the question. Well, I think I've I've got a bit of a response to that. Mm. I think in order for because I do I, I believe in the power. I mean, <laughs> power. I'm about to critique the word power, but I I do believe in the um you know the the idea of community. Um, but I think in order to find uh to seek out to express the kind of thing that you're talking about, 
I think that whatever the community is, whatever the structure is, whatever the alliance is, because yeah, I agree with you, we do need those things. But in order to do that, we'd have to eliminate the desire to have power as a kind of mandate, because that is what creates the dialectic, the oppositional dialectic, right? right? Once, once it's, once it's, you know, kind of subsumed by power and a mandate, then it becomes easy to, to oppose and shut down. And so then again, I don't know how we do that. Some, something that, but this again, I think is Nietzsche's ethics of joy or what I'm calling uh, a creative ethics. I think, you know, art and um, poetry and, and writing and, and free thinking, I know that's a dangerous word too, mm. but you know, other kinds of thinking that don't have to, that, that are not kind of trying to swirl into some organizational power. There's kind of an ethics that I'd like to see emerge. It's it's this idea of sort of changing speeds a little bit, you know, in some cases faster, in some cases slower. But liberalism is assaulted by the information structure that it set it itself built. Right. <laughs> That's the irony. the The internet is is a liberalist kind of tool, right? Mm. And it's destroying us. I, I do, you know, I hate to be a uh, technological determinist, but I do feel that that's the case. Right. Well, I think um, that's as good a place as any to leave it. I think we could go on um, for quite a bit longer, but um, thank you so much to uh, James Bacho for joining us. Before we go, I I wanted to, um, I'm really excited to announce beyond, you know, the book that I imagine will certainly be forthcom- forthcoming once it's um uh, hooked up with the press in in the near future, um, that um, James will be uh, launching a new podcast venture and joining the uh, the you know extended podcast um, uh, host producer family. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's um, one of the other areas that I work in, like you know, in aesthetics is um, film philosophy and uh, that sort of thing. Um, but I'm uh, co-hosting this with my wife and it's called uh uh, i have to think of the title because i always think of it in reverse please edit me um and it's called movies about music and it's any kind of movie um that deals with music at its core because she's a professional musician Mm. uh i do music as well and i write about music on occasion so it's and and we you know we've played music and she has a lot of experience in that she's a um uh, a voice voice actor as well so she's you know so we this is kind of a crossover in our interests and and we take films that have music as its core element and kind of um take a look at them and see if you know how authentic they are to um the artistic process of music right well I, i'm obviously going to show my age here but i i mean at some point um i'm gonna i'm gonna make a request for a spinal tap episode. That, <laughs> That's a great one. I hadn't thought of that. I, I so just, that would be a rewatchable. We we did our first one on The Sound of Metal. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so we're going to, yeah, just that, I'm definitely going to add that to the queue. Yeah. That'd no, be fun. I, I mean, because it, it, that is a, I mean, it, um, I mean, all I know is that I think the greatest album ever put out is Smell the Glove. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Smell the Glove. It's black. <laughs> it's just...
I don't even, yeah, we'll, we'll, we could go on for like 30 <laughs> minutes making Spinal Tap jokes. But um, oh, uh, James Bacho, thank you so much for joining us um, uh, as our first um, repeat guest down here in the caves of Altamira. The caves have been missing you. Um, it, there's, always a, there's always a seat for you here, of course. I'm sure this won't be the last time you'll be on. Um, and thank you so much for, uh, you know, taking us through some of the thinking that led to what uh, I, again, I've read a little bit of it. It's certainly going to be an important and fascinating book when it comes out. So everyone keep your eyes um, open for that. Uh, I will, I'll probably drop it in the show notes whenever that does come out, um, a link Great. to it. And um, be sure to um, sign up for uh, um, uh, or to subscribe to Jim's new podcast. Now, do you have a, a do you have, is that up and running? Not yet. It might be by the time you're um, doing it. I want to front load a couple of episodes before we start uploading. All right, cool. Well, if I yeah. do have a link um, available by the time this is published, um, I will certainly include that in the show notes as well. If not, I will do so at a future date. Um, James Bacho, thank you so much. And Thank you, um, Kevin. It's always a joy to talk to you. Yeah, no, I really I really enjoyed it as well. Um, we, we always cover um, the most fascinating territory. And um, to think about, I always think about where we kind of start with and and the show notes for this um, episode are a a total of about 20 words so you know (laughs) i think that's interesting well what what it kind of what what webs we weave all right take care jim all right right. you too Bye. bye Caves of Altamira is hosted and produced by me, Kevin Hockmuth. Our theme music is written, produced, and performed by Jordan Lewis. Any questions or comments can be directed to our Facebook group or sent to the email, the Caves of Altamira podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>